0: She was uh, born and raised in North Dakota. Her name was Stacy Eldridge. Born and raised in North Dakota, so that's a cold place to live. But here's the sad thing. Stacy grew up in a home that was a cold place too. She grew up in a home where the word uh, love was never mentioned. Now, don't misunderstand. Her dad was a good man, very responsible, hardworking, but he was also very formal and stiff, no emotions. See, he thought it, it just wasn't manly to show feelings. It wasn't manly to hug or hold hands, not even with little girls, not even when that little girl happens to be your daughter. So, Stacy never heard the words that little girls need to hear when they grow up, words like precious, pretty. In fact, one day, Stacy came running home after school. It had been a bad day. She was deeply hurt. She desperately needed a hug. And yet, when she went running up to her father to find a little comfort, he immediately pushed her away, and the message was loud and clear, don't bring your troubles to me. Her mother wasn't any better. I mean, she was a good lady, very moral, but she was a neat freak, which meant Stacy was never allowed to bring her friends over to the house to play, because that might make a mess. and Messes are not allowed in this home. You know, they had a living room, but it really wasn't a living room. something you live in. It's just something to look at. Everything's got to be kept in place. Everything in this home's got to remain neat and clean. No romping around in this home. So, with that kind of atmosphere, you can just imagine the dilemma that this little girl Stacy found herself in one day. One day her parents are downstairs visiting with some guests and the rules in this home are really clear. When mom and dad are talking to somebody they're not to be interrupted and the rules in this home are not to be broken. So all the adults are downstairs visiting with each other. Meanwhile Stacy's upstairs in the bathroom trying to wash her hands like a good girl's supposed to do. But here's the problem. She takes the plug and closes the drain, turns the faucet, so she can get some water to clean her hands, but once she finishes rinsing off all the soap, she can't turn the water off, and she can't pull the plug out. Both the faucet and the plug are stuck. So the water keeps running, the sink keeps filling up, and little Stacy has no clue what to do. I mean, something bad's happening, and she doesn't know how to stop it. But she can't run downstairs and talk to her parents because the rules in the house are clear. When Mom and Dad are talking to somebody, they are not to be interrupted. And the rules in this home never bend. Well, there's a crisis occurring in the bathroom upstairs. What is this little girl supposed to do? Well, she does the only thing she can think of, run and hide. <laughs> run to her bedroom, hide underneath the mattress, and just pray that somehow, way, this nightmare is just going to disappear all by itself. And yet, while she's hiding underneath the mattress, the water in the bathroom just keeps running, filling the sink, spilling out on the floor, soaking the ceiling, and eventually dropping down on the heads of the adults who are sitting Now, have you ever found yourself caught in a set of circumstances like that where you feel like that little girl, Stacy? You know, you're caught in a mess and you have no clue how to fix things. But you're afraid to talk about it. You're afraid to tell anybody else because you're convinced if you do, hey, there's no mercy for those who make messes. And so, because you don't want to be judged and you don't want to be condemned, you just kind of keep it to yourself and pray, somehow, some way, nobody else is going to find out about this trouble that you're in right now. And somehow, some way, this trouble is just going to resolve itself. And yet, while you find yourself in the middle of this mess, you just feel so helpless because everything seems so hopeless. You just feel stuck. You know what I'm talking about? You know, here's a lady who says, Yeah, my husband, he's got an anger problem. That's pretty obvious. And I doubt that it's ever going to change. But he only hits me occasionally, so maybe it's not that bad. Besides, at my age, it's probably better for me just to kind of tough it out rather than talk to somebody else, because if I talk to somebody else, that's just going to stir up all kinds of trouble. Or if I try to walk out and and, and try to make it on my own, oh, no, that's, that's too much of a challenge, so I guess I'm stuck. I'll just have to suffer quietly and do my best to survive. Or here's a young man who's thinking to himself, you know, I've, I've been depressed ever since I was a teenager. Maybe that's just who I am. I guess I'll probably be this way till the day I die. I, I, die. I guess I'm stuck. I, I'm just going to have to learn how to live with this. I guess I'm just always going to be depressed. Or here's somebody thinking, you know, I never did finish college, so can I really hope for a better job? I mean, as far as a career goes, I probably already hit the ceiling, so I really shouldn't expect to find anything better, right or here's somebody who is super shy and they're thinking, you know, it's really hard to go out there and make new friends. Besides, some people, they can be so selfish. So if I take that risk and I step out and I, I actually try to reach out, I, they're probably not going to accept me. They're probably not going to invite me to do stuff. So rather than go through all that pain and heartache and, and experience that kind of rejection, I'll just, I'll just keep to myself and I'll just try to make it on my own somehow. Do you know the feeling? Trapped, stuck, convinced that things are never going to change. We've all been there at one time or another. At different moments in our life, we found ourselves thinking that way, and yet that kind of thinking is a lie. It's just an outright lie. And it's this scripture that we're going to look at today, Hebrews chapter 4, that exposes that lie and shows us that because of Jesus, we can get help. Because of Jesus, there is hope for something better. Now... I think that in order for us to appreciate what we're going to read in the book of Hebrews chapter 4, that first of all, we need to revisit a story that we find uh, in the life of Jesus. Because looking at that story, I think it's going to help us better understand what we read in the other place. So, do you remember what we read in the book of Mark chapter 5? Here's this woman, and she's been suffering for 12 years. It's some kind of bleeding disorder. We're not sure exactly what, maybe bleeding ulcer, chronic nosebleed, maybe some form of hemophilia. You know, where the blood doesn't clot the way it's supposed to, which means anytime you got a cut or an injury, you're gonna bleed way more than what most people do. And you know what happens with the loss of blood. I mean, you remember when you that blood drive that came along and you decided to participate and you were sitting there in the chair that day and you gave your blood, and after giving the blood, the nurse said, Now, don't take off, just stay around for a while, eat some cookies and drink some orange juice. But you were kind of proud and stubborn, and said, oh, I don't need that. And yet as soon as you stood up immediately, you felt lightheaded and you nearly passed out. Why? Because you forgot that bleeding brings weakness. Bleeding creates a lack of energy. Well imagine what this woman's been going through for the past 12 years with that constant loss of blood. She always feels weak. She always feels lightheaded. She can't even do the simplest kind of work because she always feels exhausted. And that's not her only problem. She's a Jew and she knows the rules. When somebody has a bleeding problem like this, you are considered unclean, which means you've got to stay away from others. Isolated, quarantined. For the past 12 years, she has not been allowed to participate in any kind of community events. Can you imagine being stuck in a situation like that and the loneliness that it would create? And then she's also got this problem that she's poor. The Bible says for the past 12 years, she's spent every penny, nickel, dime she's got. She spent every bit of her money going from one doctor to the next, trying to find a cure for this, and nothing's worked. Not only that, the Bible says she has suffered greatly under the care of these doctors. I mean, imagine all the different kinds of medicines that they prescribe for her and all the side effects that go along with that. And then that's not working. Then imagine all the experimental treatments they begin to put her through as they begin to treat this woman like she's some kind of human guinea pig. And after 12 years of this, instead of making anything better, it's made everything worse. I mean, you talk about somebody in a helpless and hopeless situation. Picture the scene. Her body weak. Her pockets are empty. Her soul is just so weary and tired. If ever there's somebody who had a right to say, it's not going to get any better. (laughs) This is just how it is. I've got to learn how to live with this. If ever there was somebody who had a right to think that way, it's this woman. And yet, you remember the story? One day, Jesus comes by, and she's heard about Jesus. Hey, he can do things that nobody else can. So she decides to take a risk. Yeah, there's a huge crowd out there that day, and I'm not really supposed to be out in that crowd, but maybe I can kind of squeeze through and remain unnoticed. And I'll just quietly touch the hem of his garment, hoping, you know, not to be noticed, but I'll just quietly touch it, hoping with that touch, some kind of healing might occur. You know, it's a long shot, but I want to give it a try. And you remember what happened? As soon as she touches him, immediately the Lord turns around and says, Hey, who did that? Who touched me? Because Jesus knows right at that moment something powerful has occurred. A woman who's been suffering for 12 years has now, now suddenly been healed, and, and he wants to talk to her. Well, the disciples, the 12 disciples, they think he's crazy. Who touched you? There's a huge crowd pressing in from every side. I mean, dozens and dozens of people just constantly bumping up against Jesus. Who touched you? What a silly question. Everybody's touching you. And Jesus says, yeah, but not like that woman. She took a hold of me by faith. So, Jesus wants to talk. Don't let her get away. He wants to have a conversation with her, and he wants to have this conversation in front of the whole crowd because he wants everybody in the community to know she's not sick anymore. She is not to be ignored. Welcome her. Embrace her. Bring her back again. Now, I think it's that story back there in Mark chapter 5 that helps us to appreciate what we're going to read here in Hebrews chapter 4. So, kind of keep this story in the back of your mind as we read these words. Hebrews chapter 4, let's start with verse. Fourteen it says, therefore, we have Jesus. And what does it mean to have Jesus, to have a life with him, to have a relationship with him? Well, we, in Jesus, we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven. This separates him from everybody else. You know, when you hear the Bible identify Jesus as priest, you've got to ask, well, what does that mean? A priest is a go-between. It's a mediator, somebody who has access to God, somebody who is authorized and equipped to enter into God's presence on our behalf, to get us the, the help that we need. In other words, if you were to put it in our terms today, you would say a priest is somebody who has clout. You know, if you've ever lived and worked in a place like Chicago, in a place like that to get anywhere to make things happen, you've got to have friends in high places. You know somebody at City Hall that can make that parking ticket disappear. You know somebody in the mayor's office who can have that private meeting with the mayor and get your brother-in-law that contract, that sweetheart of a contract. When you can't get the job interview, when you can't get the appointment with the doctor, you've got this friend who knows somebody on the inside, and all they have to do is pick up the phone and make the call, and suddenly you've got the job. Suddenly you've got the appointment. Suddenly you've got access to the best doctor in town, something you couldn't get on your own, but your friend had all the right connections, and they could get that help for you. That's a priest. A priest is somebody who has clout. Well, Unlike what happens in Chicago, we're not talking about anything illegal or unethical here in the book of Hebrews. In fact, if you were a Jewish person living there in the first century and you read this, you heard Jesus identified as a priest, immediately that's just going to resonate with you. I mean, you're going to be familiar with this kind of terminology. As a Jewish person, you understand there's no forgiveness without a sacrifice of some kind. And only a priest is qualified to offer that sacrifice on your behalf. Well, there are thousands and thousands of priests, but there's only one high priest, and only he is allowed to step behind the veil, step behind the curtain, and enter into the most holy room, enter into the very presence of God. But he's only allowed to do that once a year. And even on that special day, when he steps into that special place, he has a rope tied around his leg just in case something bad would happen. In case he'd just drop over and die. That way the priests on the outside, they'd have a way to pull him out because nobody else is authorized to enter into that sacred room. And yet this high priest who has this special access to God, he has to keep repeating the same ceremony on the annual day of atonement year after year after year because the sacrifices he's offering are not sufficient to provide a permanent blessing of forgiveness. But Jesus can See, this is what separates him. He's not just a priest or just a high priest; he is the great high priest. He didn't just step into a tabernacle; he stepped into heaven itself, where once and for all, like the Bible says here in Hebrews chapter one, he provided purification for all sin of all time. So, Jesus has clout like nobody else does, and because of that fact, that's why the writer of the Hebrews says, writer of the book of Hebrews says. Therefore, since we have Jesus, a great high priest who's ascended to heaven, he is the Son of God, therefore, here's how we should respond. Let us hold firmly to him. That expression, hold firmly, is used 47 times throughout the New Testament. And it either describes those moments when Jesus himself reaches out to grab somebody by the hand, to take hold of them because he wants to help and heal, he wants to bless, he wants to bring about a change in their life. Or it describes those moments when somebody reaches out to Jesus to take hold of him. Like that woman there in Mark chapter 5, who for the past 12 years has been suffering because nobody else has been able to help her out. But Jesus can. So he's a great high priest. He can do things that nobody else can do. Here's something else that makes Jesus a great high priest. He gives us this freedom where we want to approach. We feel free to approach him because of who he is and what he's like. Notice what it says here in verse 15. It says, for we do not have in Jesus a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. That word weakness, we're not talking about sin. When the Bible's talking about weaknesses, it's talking about our limitations, the things that limit us, that, that hold us back, uh, the areas of our life where we lack strength, we lack the resources to be able to provide for ourselves, like the woman in Mark chapter 5. No money, no friends. Every day doesn't have the physical energy to even stand up and walk. Does Jesus really understand the struggles we go through because of our weaknesses? Yeah. And here's one of the evidences, the last part of this verse. What we have in Jesus is our high priest, we have somebody who's been put to the test in every possible way. With this one exception, he did not sin. Now think about that. Who has the greater temptation? The person who five minutes later just gives up and gives in and just allows himself to be consumed by the moment? Or is it the person who two hours later is still saying no? Still fighting, still refusing to yield to the pressure. Who is it that really feels the weight and the tension of that struggle? It's the one who continues to resist. Who is it that really understands how strong the wind is? The person who won't even fight it and they just lay down? Or is it the person who continues to stand and continues to walk against the wind? Who really understands how strong and forceful the wind is? It's the one who continues to resist. So it is with Jesus. Because he did not yield, he, more than anybody else, understands how strong that temptation can be, how tough life can be. And because he understands that, that's why he's drawn to us. He sympathizes. Hey, I I know life in this world is anything but easy. I am eager to go to bat for you. And here's one of the ways he displays that sympathy. Verse 16. Because of Jesus as high high priest, he's now opened the door. He is now given us an, an opportunity to do something really special. Let us then approach God. And the word approach here is written in such a way it means to do it again. And again, again, any moment of any day, you should feel free to just come and talk to God. And he says, when you approach God's throne of grace, do it with confidence. The word confidence means no inhibitions, no hesitations. You don't hold anything back. Just come boldly. Be frank about all the struggles you're going through. (laughs) Years ago, I got a chance to hear Ben Merrill preach on this text. And I love the way he translated this verse. That day, he was trying to help us understand, do you appreciate what this expression, with confidence, means? Here's what it means, and he translated it this way. He said, let us approach God's throne of grace and just throw up. (laughs) That's what with confidence means. Just throw up. Take that mess you're in. Take that struggle that you're going through, even though it stinks, even though it's ugly, even though it's something repulsive, and just lay it out before the Lord and know that as you lay it out before him, he's not going to reject you. He's not going to turn you away. This is a throne of grace, not a throne of judgment. So, the result is, when you come to God with that kind of honesty, when you come to God with that kind of trust, here's the result. You will receive mercy, and you will find grace to help you in your time of need. Russell Moore has written this, this powerful book. It's called Adopted for Life. And in the book, he tells a story about how he and his wife had adopted these two little boys, one-year-old, Timothy and Benjamin adopted these two little boys from an orphanage in Russia. I said they had to go through all kinds of red tape. It was a long process, all kinds of trouble and effort, but finally it became official they were now the proud parents of Timothy and Benjamin. But that was just the beginning of their struggles. You see, these boys, for their brief existence, their their life here in this world, they'd been contained in this one-room house. Not once in that first year, those first 12 months, had either one ever been taken outside just to see the sun, or feel the wind in their face. These two little boys had grown up in an environment where they too never heard the word love. So that day, Russell Moore says that day, Russell Moore and his wife came to pick him up, carry him out, bring him back to America to the brand new home. He says that first moment when they picked the boys up and they carried him outside, they started trembling. They immediately began to reach back to that house because that's the only life they've ever known. That's the only thing they're familiar with. Who are these new people? And Where's this new place they're taking? What does this all mean? They were so scared and confused. Which meant getting back to America and making this transition to this new environment was anything but easy. I mean, every day, Russell Moore and his wife, they'd read books to the children, they'd sing to them, they'd hug them, hold them, love them, you know, play games with them. And yet it seemed like forever before those two little boys would ever actually relax or settle down or feel comfortable in this new home. But Russell Moore says, one day he and his wife realized, I think we've hit a turning point because they now realized that neither one of the toddlers was trying to hide food in their high chair. Seeing that orphanage over there in Russia, uh, they weren't fed on a regular basis. I mean, you just never knew from day to day if you were going to get a meal on that day. So even at the year, age of one, the little boys had learned, hey, if we're going to survive, we've got to watch out for ourselves. Nobody else in this place is really watching out for us. So we've got to watch out for ourselves. So when they got food, they grabbed everything they could get. And then they'd hang on to it, some of it because they didn't know when they'd get a chance to eat again. But now, here they were in this new home with new parents, and slowly, gradually, over time, the two little fellows began to discover, you know, this is a new place. This is something better. Here we have somebody we can trust. Here we have somebody who really cares. We don't have to fight for the scraps anymore. Because in this home, when there's a need, there's a response. When we have a need, somebody's going to provide. I think that's the kind of confidence that the writer of Hebrews is trying to build and develop. Pray. But when you come to God, when you approach God and you pray, stop and think about who this is you're talking to. Don't come to God like some kind of bureaucrat and worry about all the proper protocol. No. Come to God like a child, like a child who belongs in this home, like a child who in the middle of the night wakes up because they had this terrible nightmare. And so as a result, they just begin to cry and cry loudly. They're not afraid to let everybody in the house know something bad just happened to me and I need help. And instinctively, that child knows immediately there's going to be a response. Immediately, because they're crying, somebody's going to come running in that room and hug them and hold them and help calm them down. Immediately, somebody's going to come in and begin to wrap their arms around them and begin to comfort them and help get them safely through the night. I believe that's the promise. That's the blessing that is being promised to us here. Approach God and approach Him frequently. And when you approach Him, approach Him with the confidence of knowing when you have a need, He will respond. You will receive mercy. And you will find grace to help you in your time of need. Let's pray.